Hey guys, it's Abel here with the Sustainable Self-Development Podcast. And the day arrived. Dr. Mike Isretel and Dr. Eric Helms are going to have a debate about bulking or whether you should bulk faster or slower. Uh, should you have a bigger caloric surplus and gain more weight or should you have a smaller surplus and gain smaller increments per unit of time? and thereby, by definition, bulk for longer. Uh, there will, this will be the topic of this debate, and you'll have two freaking PhDs debate over it. Sounds too good to be true. Well, yeah, it kind of is, but it is still absolutely happening. So we'll jump right in because you'll skip ahead anyway. But please, please, please be sure to check out these guys' resources. If your goal is to build muscle and you want to have absolute top-notch science-based information on it, then you definitely want to check out the links I put in the description. Uh, researching and educating people over how to get jacked in the most time-efficient and effective manner is the livelihood of these guys. So do, your, do yourself a favor and check out the courses, books, and research reviews that these guys produce. You'll find the links in the description and they will be mentioned in the end of this episode as well. Also use the time stems to navigate between the topics we discuss and hey if you can count the amount of times i said the word excellent in this episode you'll get a bonus smiley face from me and now the debate starts is this really happening or am i just imagining this imagination yeah, yeah most of the time i walk through life in a fugue state so i actually don't know the answer to that yeah you should probably remember abel that that homeless man that gave you 10 grams of mushrooms that you ate 30 minutes ago, the, they're <laughs> kicking in now. So you're actually in your apartment crying by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and that wouldn't surprise me because uh, we are going to talk about bulking with Eric Helms and Mike Isretel. I'm really excited to actually do this with you guys because this is something, this is one of those topics like the reverse diet was back in the day or the training frequency topic was recently where a lot of people have heard the two of you separately discuss this uh, concept on various podcasts and articles, uh, solo videos, all of that stuff. And you seem to have a somewhat differing, although of course not completely opposing stance on this matter. And then people always turn to either one of you to ask about your stances on what the other person said. So now it's finally a good chance for both of you to uh, voice your views on death. this. Exactly, exactly what you just said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I'll just jump right into this whole thing with my first question to first uh, Mike, which is uh, how would you define in a general sense, uh, what defines a successful bulking process uh, in terms of uh, caloric surplus, uh, duration of the bulking period? How should that look like for most people for uh, optimal results? Oh, um, so I think that, you know, you're usually going to have a surplus of calories on daily that will be between 150 and 500 calories in most cases. I think you'll seek to gain somewhere between, depending on your particular demographics and various other constraints, a quarter of a pound to a pound of scale weight or tissue, but proxied by scale weight per week. I think that your one stretch of a massing phase should last anywhere between, oh, usually between two and four months. 
but I would say not much shorter for a variety of reasons I can state later and not much longer for a variety of reasons I can state later. And I think the fraction of muscle versus fat that you gain is dependent on still other very many factors. But I honestly think that a 50-50 split is really good for an intermediate. And for the advanced, a 50-50 is probably unrealistic. And you're looking for a good result of 25% of that being muscle, something like 75% being fat. I think the 75-25 the other way, 75 muscle, 25 fat, is reserved um, mostly for the beginner. And that's how I would define a successful bulking phase and its basic parameters. Right. Uh, that was great. And um, now I'm turning to you, Eric, with the same question. So um, how would you define a successful uh, bulking period in terms of the, the method? And uh, would, would there be any points that um, you would address differently than Mike just did? So, yeah, great question. And um, in many ways, I, I agree with, uh, with Mike. I think there should be a caloric surplus. Uh, and I think if anything we differ just in the uh, severity of it or, or rather the size of it, I should say. Um, I typically recommend rates that fall between gaining uh, about one to three pounds per month on average. Uh, another way to look at it is about 0.5 to 1.5% of your body weight per month, which is a nice way to scale to whether you're male, female, uh, tall, short, larger or smaller. Cause in the end, the actual tissues that are growing, um, are happening at, every single tissue level of muscle you have, which is your whole body. Uh, so, um, you know, it, it does need to be scaled to your size uh, and more reasonable rates need to be, be relative to, to where you're starting. Uh, and then within that range, uh, the, the rate, instead of just it being a percentage that is scaled to your initial size, you also need to scale it to your training age. And like, like Mike was saying, I completely agree uh, that the likelihood of you gaining all muscle, uh, especially at a larger surplus, at a larger rate of weight gain, which are essentially the same thing, uh, becomes slimmer and slimmer, no pun intended, as you become advanced. Uh, because as you get closer and closer to your genetic ceiling, uh, it's, it's unlikely that you'll be able to put on lots of muscle all at once. So uh, there are a couple ways to approach that. You can take shorter massing phases interspersed by uh, mini cuts, which I think is certainly reasonable. Um, what I find works equally as well uh, in more advanced lifters is to just slow it down a lot and, uh, you know, look to gain, say, something like six pounds over six months uh, and then assess and see whether or not uh, you've pushed your body fat too high. Um, I don't personally see any issue with long-term phases of gaining. Uh, I also don't necessarily have an issue with going back and forth uh, with mini cuts and bulking. Now, the typical reason I don't recommend that as much is because advanced lifters, they tend to kind of want to hold on to that idea that they can still go through those uh, quote unquote bulking phases that occurred when they were novices or early stage intermediates and have them be successful. And more often what I find uh, occurs is they just kind of get sloppy over and over and over again and put on really not any more measurable amount of muscle than they would have had they just slowed it down. And I find that's just not fun for most people and uh, impractical and uh, you end up spending more time in a deficit than, than you would have to. Uh, and, uh, to me, that seems like probably uh, taking away from the pr productivity of the overall off season. And the final caveat I'll put in all of this is that I've worked with 
hundreds of high-level and mid-level and low-level drug-free lifters, and like two uh, just kind of randomly people who are who are enhanced. So uh, this is very much advice based on the very limited research we have and also my experience with drug-free uh, competitors. Uh, right. Excellent. Um, so thank you for that, that first uh, statement from both of you guys. So I'll give the mic uh, back to Mike. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> so uh, this was not planned, by the way. So um, wh- what I want to ask you, Mike, is um, do you see any kind of specific issue with going for long? So maybe even seven, eight or more months of, of gaining continuously before you eventually dip into, into a deficit to clean up some of that mess you made? So I do see some advantages and disadvantages to very long term. And by that, I will define personally as four month plus uninterrupted surplus conditions nutritionally and the concordant training required to benefit from those. Um, There are some plus sides and there are some downsides. One of the plus sides is that tracking your body weight, especially if you're into doing weekly averages and you're not gaining much at any one time, becomes much easier uh, in the sense that it becomes more dependable. Um, A lot of the first weeks, plural, of a mini cut or a bulk is a lot of water weight, uh, water compartment movement, and it really blurs the picture of what the hell's going on. But if you gain for longer than four months, you start to get a very, very dependable morning, evening body weight, and you can really start to track uh, proxy tissue rate gains much closer to scale weights. Another big advantage, I think, of longer bulking phases is the concept of momentum. And I think that concept very likely has physiological reality in the human body as regards to muscle gain. This is one of the reasons why I am against, in most cases, hypertrophy, or sorry, bulking phases that last less than two months. Because um, I think that, I've used this analogy before, I think the construction of muscle tissue is much more akin to the construction of a skyscraper than it is to piling sand on a big sand pile. Um, For example, if you don't weave the elevator shaft through the next floor, floor 77, there's no physical way to get certain materials that require an elevator versus the stairs up to floor 78. So until you have all electrical, all wiring installed, and the elevator functioning to get to 78, you can't really start floor 78. So there has to be a certain amount of completion um, of these macro structures that are not simply the size of a brick, entire floors. And I think entire floors, so to speak, in muscle terms, take a while to be constructed. It is not a matter of days. I think it is longer. So, for example, if you're truly looking to construct muscle, I think a lot of times it's a very good conceptual understanding, but I think it falls a little short where people say it's just a matter of higher fractional uh, synthetic rates than fractional breakdown rates. Well, yeah, with sand in a pile analogy, totally. thing is, in muscle, you're designing, you're building entire complex systems. A sarcomere is a functional complex system. It does not take, you know, like, uh, you know, a couple of seconds to build. It probably doesn't take a day to build, and it doesn't take a day to integrate into an already extant myofibril. So uh, I think satellite cell um, uh, sort of infiltration also takes a while. And I think a lot of these are probably momentum-based, where your body, remember from an evolutionary perspective, especially as you get more advanced, doesn't, it's not a really big fan of building muscle. 
And it needs quite a bit of convincing that you're going to be building this muscle in a more permanent state. Can you guys hear me okay? Yep. Okay. I got some weird feedback. I don't want to do the robot voice like, bah, 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 bah. <laughs> um, so, so I think it's uh, potentially a good thing to mass for longer, to bulk for longer, because I think that really uh, gives the body a huge or, or gives the physiology kind of a momentum where the muscle building process occurs for so long that it just in analogical terms, your body's like, all right, whatever. I clearly you want this muscle. We'll put it on and we'll keep it. But I think to use an extreme example, if you bulk for like a week and then you start cutting, never mind the fact that you're not going to be able to, you know, really know if you're at a surplus, really know anything, your body's much, much more likely to jettison any kind of structures it adds for a very short time uh, than the ones it adds for a long time. And the myonuclear domain ceiling plays really well into this, right? So uh, if you, after a while, don't expand your satellite cell pool um, or the the, uh, the actual use of satellite cells integra integrated into the muscle, um, it, it doesn't matter how much muscle you put on within the myonuclear domain. If you don't add any new, uh, any new satellite cells, that muscle just goes away pretty fast and you, it just goes away with your diet. But if you add satellite cells, it's really good. And I think the process of adding satellite cells, et cetera, in any meaningful number probably takes months, plural. So um, in a lot of in high-level coaches, individuals I've talked to about this, I really do think there is something to momentum. Oh, that was loud as hell. Was that on my end? Sorry, my computer's yelling at me. Thanks, computer. <laughs> so on the other end, so there's definitely a plus side to longer masses in that regard. On the other hand, I think that hypertrophy training itself um, is an auto-extinguishing phenomenon that if you continuously tap into the pathways, the anabolic pathways that allow for hypertrophy training to occur, then they, like all pathways with negative feedback loops, become more, less and less sensitive. There's also a nutritional desensitization that occurs. Um, as you get to higher and higher body fats, your insulin sensitivity goes down. Probably your sensitivity to anabolizing muscle tissue goes down as well. And if you go slower, this, of course, helps the nutritional side because you're not getting as fat as fast. But I think if you go slower, um, it's, uh, you know, one of these things where it only attends to the nutritional side, but on the training side, I think we still have a problem. So basically my, probably my biggest concern with, tr with uh, a massing phase that lasts, you know, four months plus, let's say four to six months is that after month number four, um, I think it's time for a lower volume training phase to resensitize the body to grow again at higher volumes. And, you know, as, as the principle of overload demands, we progressively present higher and higher volumes, progressively higher and higher relative intensities, progressively make use of more advanced techniques such as metabolites or BFR or whatever. I think in about month four, you run out of shit to do that is no longer you can present a superlative stimulus. And it has been shown in empirical evidence from, from my reading of the literature that um, catabolic activity with higher prolonged higher volumes starts to rise to the level of anabolic activity. So at first, when you train in the first week, you get a really big anabolic response, but the catabolic concomitant response is relatively low. As you train for weeks and weeks and weeks and longer, the uh, amount of catabolic activity uh, starts to rather relatively equal the amount of anabolic activity. It eventually supersedes it when you enter a, a, a situation of overreaching. Um, I think after a while, you have nothing more to give from the overload perspective that will be anything less than, than overreaching. And I think at that point, you have to shut it down come back to lower volumes, essentially take a, you know, what I call a resensitization phase or a maintenance phase, train just enough to keep your muscle around, potentially timing that with a mini cut, which I think is smart, um, and letting the body cool off for a bit and then making another run at the process. 
I think if you're training for much longer than four months consecutively in hypertrophy training, I, I, I don't think that hypertrophy training, especially for more advanced individuals, is going to become as effectual as it could be. Uh, possibly in extreme cases, completely non-effectual. And I think it's pertinent to come back around and, 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 and go back and, and reset some things. It's kind of like an analogy could be made for training at the mesocycle level. You know, if you want to train for 12 weeks without a deload, either you're training very way too easy to maximize outcomes or you're overreaching, possibly overtraining towards the latter half. But if you deload every five or six microcycles, every five or six weeks, then you can both stay in an intelligent and appropriately voluminous and, and intense uh, sort of stimulus the entire time. But also when the time comes, you back off, you let everything reset and you go at it again. So the, those are my, my thoughts uh, briefly summarized. <laughs> briefly, LOL. Right. Um, okay. So thank you, Mike. That was that was great. And so I could... Um, I. I'm making notes in the meanwhile here, and I identified a couple points of uh, contention so far. So let's try to go in order with these. So Mike touched on the fact that long-term hypertrophy training, I mean, this is more of a nutrition-focused podcast now, but hypertrophy training in the long-term um, uh, presents some sort of anabolic resistance that develops over time. And the other thing was the the body fat aspect of all of this, that at higher body fat percentages, you're less responsive to gaining muscle. So first, let's, if you uh, want to briefly touch on these two points, Eric. Certainly. Yeah, and and, uh, and they're good points. So I think the, the first one that Mike brought up is that at higher body fat levels, uh, we typically see dampening of anabolic signaling. And there's actually a pretty good recent paper that came out that looked at uh, individuals of different body fat levels and their response to protein feeding. Um, and it did indeed show this. But I think there's a couple really important things to point out about that paper is one, uh, that the quote unquote normal people in that paper were still around like 20% body fat for males, uh, which means that um, what is considered a, a level of body fat where it provides anabolic resistance is probably a lot higher than where most bodybuilders are hang, hanging out in the off season. That's not to say there aren't some bodybuilders who get up into the 20% body fat range as males, uh, you know, the equivalent being, you know, 28 to 30% in a female, um, but it's probably not the norm. The second really important thing to point out about that study is that they weren't exercising. And uh, training creates a whole lot of beneficial effects in muscle that, that keeps it pretty sensitive. Uh, you know, you're basically putting in and removing uh, substrates all the time. And when you really look at some of the, uh, the types of ways that our body gets resistant to substrates like, you know, insulin, uh, in, in the case of diabetes and things like that, a lot of it comes from an overload of that uh, substrate without ever being able to clear it out and the body having to do some crazy acrobatics like trying to make itself resistant to the hormone that actually will uh, put more uh, substrate into it to try to deal with this. And then you get this cascade of effects that we have identified as, you know, type 2 diabetes. Um, so... Uh, while I don't have direct data comparing trained individuals to untrained individuals, we do have some pretty cool observational data when we look at super heavyweight weightlifters, super heavyweight powerlifters, um, and some bodybuilders in the offseason that I'm not too convinced that in those individuals who do push above 20% body fat uh, and, and sometimes substantially higher, that you can't make decent progress, at least in a practical realm, where you do see weightlifters and powerlifters getting stronger in the super heavies. Uh, and you do see bodybuilders who seem to make improvement season to season, even though they kind of go on the, you know, Lee Priest bulk. Um, obviously, that's going to be confounded by a lot of other variables, but uh, I think it's an interesting observation nonetheless. 
So the first thing I would say is that this is probably only a concern at, at pretty damn high body fat levels for a bodybuilder. And it may not be as much of a concern if you're doing resistance training, uh, which I would really hope any bodybuilder trying to put on muscle mass would be lifting weights or they've really got some things wrong and they need to kind of go back to the, the drawing board before even listening to this podcast. Um, now, as far as training, I very much agree with Mike. And I think uh, there's, there's a very strong argument for a lot of different reasons, both practical and uh, mechanistic, as to why you'd want to have some level of, of let's call it periodization. Uh, where you have periods of, of high volume, uh, high overload stimulus, periods of deloads, uh, periods where I m- might call a transition block, where you're, like Mike said, you're, you're not really trying to push it. You're trying to recover both mentally and physically. And I think that that serves the purpose of resensitizing everything. Um, you know, periods where you might be using higher loads, uh, lower volumes, uh, where, you're, where you're testing. I think all of those different phases have a time and a place, and they work nicely with a, uh, an appropriate surplus. Um, many of the, the athletes I work with, and this is an, I think an important note is that I don't have them necessarily, uh, tracking calories, uh, in the off season. I'm normally looking at the output and then ensuring all the boxes are ticked so that we know that a appropriate environment is there. So for example, during prep, they may be tracking all three macronutrients because we have a very, uh, specific goal and we need to be highly, specific in our measurements. But when we're looking to gain uh, what is very difficult to measure, let's say a pound a month, uh, I'm more so looking at, you know, two or three week trends in body weight, encouraging them to eat till they're feeling slightly more than satiated, and then making sure that, you know, protein is in place and adequate carbohydrate intake, etc. But we're a little looser with the tracking and we're more so relying on the habits they've developed as being a experienced bodybuilder. And what that often does is that satiety plays some role relative to the amount of energy expenditure they're doing. So during a phase where they're in a high volume, high overload phase, uh, they're to be seeing the kind of weight gain we want, they're going to be eating a higher caloric intake naturally. And it might fluctuate on the days, but it's going to, in my experience, with a experienced athlete who's actually gotten away from tracking all the time and just living by uh, the numbers, if you will, and we're just following a very rigid meal plan, but using a bit more of uh, their in intuition and in bringing in the qualities of hunger and, and, um, and satiety and kind of letting that modulate their surplus. And then also looking at the, the output, the weight gain and modulating that back again. So kind of feeding back into the system going, right, maybe I should be a little more full or a little more, uh, a little less full at the end of my meals to ensure I'm gaining at the right rate. This coincides nicely with whatever periodization model you're using. So when you go into that, uh, maintenance phase, the, the the calories come down, so the surplus doesn't get too high. So it kind of keeps it uh, auto-regulated, if you will, the surplus with the the total training load, uh, which which I find works quite well, and it prevents you from putting on body fat too quickly, which is kind of what would get you to that first place. So with a slower gaining phase, uh, with a slower rate of gaining, you're less likely to have your body fat get as high to have to deal with that theoretical, although unlikely, situation. Uh, where a higher body fat is going to cause a problem in my experience. But I do totally agree um, that you're going to need to have cycles where you are not trying to push uh, overload and you're not trying to, um, you know, stimulate hypertrophy as much because you're trying to recover. And it probably doesn't make sense for, let's say you ran a, a one month uh, transition cycle. You know, if, if you're running a one week deload, I, I normally don't think it's worth manipulating your nutrition much, just kind of auto-regulate it because what's going to happen in a week anyway, uh, especially when you're trying to gain a pound a month. Um, but 
if you're going to go through one of those longer blocks, like uh, Dr. Isertel mentioned, where you're going to have like a transition block, that is probably a, a situation where you would not want to be in much of a surplus, if, if at all, uh, during that period. You probably wouldn't want to be in a deficit either, in my opinion, uh, if that is a recovery block, um, but just kind of eating closer to maintenance calories and more, um, you know, with a less aggressive surplus at least is probably a good idea. So I would agree there. All right. Excellent. So um, there are a couple of very interesting points to touch on here. One is the is still the, the magnitude of cal caloric surplus, which I definitely want to dig into in a second. But just to put a kind of not a final point, because this question will always keep coming up in the future. But uh, this this question of body fat percentages and and sort of what are the optimal uh, ranges to aim at to to have optimal nutrient partitioning. You, Eric, you mentioned that you're not so confident in this fifteen um, percent as the upper limit for for uh, muscle gaining. Um, I, I want to address this question to both of you. Are you um, aware of any kind of literature or study that would indicate that, for example, you have a worse nutrient partitioning at say 15% body fat than what you have at 11% body fat because this is not really a, a, a trivial question in the sense that a lot of people fear this 15% upper limit so much that uh, they, they are of the belief that they have to get to 8% body fat before they even start gaining muscle. So um, what do you guys think about this and um, yeah I'd like both of you to, to chime in if you care. <laughs> that works. Mike's <laughs> over there probably already already answering the question. But um yeah, I uh, I think practically this is something to think about, but mechanistically and at the physiological level, again, this comes down to the fact that you're you're not sedentary. Um this doesn't hold a lot of water until you get pretty extreme. Um you know, the the original idea came is what's called Forbes theory, and it's based on uh I would not say strong experimental research in resistance-trained athletes. The idea that um, the whole P-ratio idea. And it's, I think it's, it's a very useful conversation, but it doesn't work great both ways. And I can tell you that if you are a drug-free bodybuilder and you've just gotten yourself down to, say, 5 or 6% body fat for a male or, you know, 9 to 10% body fat for a female, your body is ready to put on body fat. Uh, it may also be ready to regain the lost muscle that, that happened during that, 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 that season, if you did indeed lose any, uh, which seems to be much more likely in males, but that's another topic. Um, you know, regain of lost muscle, certainly. You know, regain of lost or, or depleted glycogen stores and the appearance of fullness and you feeling better and seeing, uh, you know, much better energy in the gym and, and being able to very soon put on a lot of lost muscle and look better, Yes. But are you actually going to start gaining new muscle tissue because you're lean? Absolutely not. If anything, you're in a position where, where body fat storage is more likely uh, when you're very, very lean, uh, unless you're naturally lean. That's kind of, you know, your settling range. But if you've just dieted a long period of time, especially down to single digit body fat percentages for males, I actually don't think that's in a better, you're in a better position to put on more muscle. It may give you a larger buffer of time before you have gotten unhappy with what you see in the mirror and allow for a more aggressive or longer bulk. Um, but I don't necessarily think that was needed or necessary. Um, I think really what it comes down to, uh, because as I said, there are super heavyweights who have no problem getting stronger. Uh, what it comes down to is what's practical for your goals. So if you're a competitive bodybuilder and you're taking a, uh, a one-year off season, 
that gives you a little more leeway than if you're going to be competing again six months later. You know, if you have a year and a half before you're going to start your next diet for the stage, you can get reasonably high in body fat before you have to start thinking about maybe a mini cut or a maintenance phase before then, you know, ramping your calories back up and then dieting. You know, you, you have to think about kind of the long-term planning. So when, when I work with athletes, I might not want them to get above 15 or 16% body fat for a male purely for the fact that it's going to extend our diet. And we might end up losing muscle on the back end or just not being able to do all the shows we want. And it comes down to really finding a sustainable body fat percentage for the off season where behaviorally and in terms of psychological stress, food focus, uh, and also just how hungry or not they are in the off season, they can maintain. And we basically want to maintain the lowest body fat percentage we can while not being food focused, while still feeling like sleep quality is there, uh, libido is normal, and everything's functioning the way it should be. And you, you can train effectively, your joints don't feel achy, etc. Uh, this is a pretty wide range. I've worked with, with males anywhere in the range of a legit 10% up to, you know, 20%. Um, and I, I think the arbitrary number of 15% is probably not helpful. And like you said, there's many individuals who uh, I think that data does not, or, or that recommendation is harmful to them, or they think they have to get lean before they can bulk. And in most cases, the individuals who do that, um, not to, to sound like I'm blaming the victim here or anything like that, but I, I think they're already coming from a background where they're uncomfortable with body fat gain. They want to be leaner. They don't like what they see in the mirror. And they're looking for information to justify what they would probably do anyway. They want to have a quote-unquote science-based reason to get lean uh, so that they're more comfortable with the idea of putting on body fat because then they know it won't be as bad going from 8 to 12% versus going from 12 to 15%. But I think it's it's a smokescreen that they're they're giving to themselves that this is somehow optimal and they're just filtering which whichever information already fits their biases. Right. Uh, so just before I give back the, the mic to Dr. Israel, just to make this even more controversial, uh, would you say that a guy, if he is not competing anytime soon, would be just as effective in his muscle gaining pursuits if he was to undulate between a body fat percentage of 10% and 15% as if he was to do so between 15% and 20%? Like, would you say, Eric, that there is no uh, practical difference between the two in terms of efficacy? I would say on average, I don't think there would be a practical difference. Um, there may be some individuals where that would be different. So I think that hold your mileage may vary thing because, you know, there's just such a wide uh, diversity between individuals. But on average, I don't think there'd be any difference. And if you look at what is considered a quote unquote healthy body fat percentage, um, you know, like I said, even in sedentary individuals, when you're up around 20% body fat, there's no anabolic resistance that we can see in a sedentary person in response to, to feeding. So I, I highly doubt that, that that would cause any uh, mechanistic physiological uh, difference in response to training or, or, or uh, nutrition with the goal of gaining mass. But I do think that if you're hanging around 20% body fat and you're trying to go through a massing phase, you're not going to like what you see. And psychologically, it's going to bother you. You know, going from 20 to, let's say, let's say you did a really good job. Like Mike said, you're doing 50-50 muscle and, 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 uh, and, and to, to body fat. And you put on a, a good chunk of muscle, you know, over a four-month period. You might go from 20 to either 21 or 22% body fat. Uh, and you put on a good amount of muscle, but you might not look that much better. In fact, you might feel like you look a little bit worse yeah, because you're already starting from such a high body fat uh, percentage, uh, unless you just distribute it really well, or, you know, you gained a, a disproportionate amount of muscle in your, in, you know, your, your delts and your lats. So you look wider and better in a shirt. Um, 
But if you kind of gained it more evenly, you know, it's, it's you're not really going to like what you're seeing. But when you go from, you know, 12 to say or 10 to say 15 percent body fat, uh, you're maintaining enough uh, of, you know, the, the illusion of, of more size because you're leaner, at least when your shirt's off. And I think, you know, you'll still have some veins in your arm when you train and you'll see, you know, the outline of a four pack, uh, you know, for a male, I think, and for a female as well, just, you know, with different markers for what that looks like. It's going to be a little more motivating when you're a little bit leaner, uh, and you, but you just have to watch and not let that get out of control, you know. So, I, so the short answer to your question, because I've given you a roundabout one, is physiologically probably not going to be any difference. Psychologically, I can easily see how a lot of people would not want to be pushing into, uh, you know, the low twenties or uh, you know the, the low thirties if you're a female, even if there wouldn't be a difference. Like if we actually just put you on a DEXA and looked at how much lean mass changed, because visually. Uh, the addition of body fat at that level is not going to be something that you're that most people are comfortable with if they're if they consider themselves recreational lifters or bodybuilders who are doing this to improve their appearance. Excellent. So, uh, Doctor Isratel, uh, now I will give the mic back to you. So, if you're still there, uh, what did you think of uh, what uh, Eric just said about uh, body fat percentages and their optimality for muscle building? Yeah, well, you know, let me just state, I don't think much of him at all. I don't think much of Eric either, you know, while... <laughs> yes, finally. I've been waiting for this, but finally. Okay. Um, okay, but before I get into that, Eric, has anyone ever told you that on the phone slash speaker, you sound almost exactly like Captain America? No, that's a first. I've been told I look like Chris Evans, but sounding like him? Yeah. It's a first. Yeah, I also I also heard that he looks like it, but yeah. I don't really know how he sounds, so. Oh, man, I'm telling you. In your room, it is everywhere. Everywhere you step, there's anabolic resistance. Um, and that, if you're truly interested in your best outcomes, which sometimes your best outcomes at a high enough level are any outcomes at all that are beneficial, that you may have to attend to the very finer points, such as keeping your body fat as low as possible without getting into the diet fatigue situation that Eric very well described, um, or uh, but at the same time not getting so high that you just sort of get any of this extra body fat anabolic resistance sort of situation. So I think for individuals that are advanced, between 10 and 50% body fat, um, I think anything much, much in excess of 15% body fat, I think may be fine, but is not uh, guaranteed enough to be fine for my tastes. Um, I think that... Um, for most individuals, anywhere between 10 and 20% body fat is a-okay to run through and train, which is actually one of the, my, my, one of my key recommendations when individuals ask me, hey, I just started lifting. Should I cut or mass? I actually say neither. Just maintain, eat well, because you don't know how to eat probably yet. Just eat good whole foods and plenty of protein for about a year. You'll just recomp to an exceptional degree. And then one, wherever you recomp, wherever you end up genetically, if you're on the leaner side, you can start massing or bulking. If you're on the you know fatter side, you can start mini cutting or whatever to continue to bulk. So I think that that 10 to I very very much agree with Eric that the 10 to 15 percent um, uh, landmarks become a, you know a focus of extant neuroses for people that already have them, um, and they say you know I dex it at 15.1. Does that mean I gained point 0.1 just pure fat? I'm like, no, it's not that you just gained pure fat. Is that you gained 
a moral negligence that will always be forever with you and will tar everything you ever do and say. It's much worse than you think, right? And they're like, oh, fuck, I knew it. You know, like, yeah, I'm just telling you what you already know, but you're going to hell. Um, so, so I think that paranoia about saying between 10 to 15% applies almost never to beginners, somewhat to intermediates, but not a big deal. I think to the advanced, they had better keep between, you know, 15-ish. You know, if you go to 16, 17, who gives a shit? But if you're like chronically between, you know, uh, 17 and 21% body fat, I think that if you're advanced, you could do better um, by staying a little leaner. There's another situation or another sort of constraint that may encourage staying on the leaner end. Um, and that is the the really high amount of negatives with a prolonged calorie deficit to get back into contest shape. So if you're a competitor, I think that if you're on north of 20%, you look down the pipe at your next show, which is a year and a half away, and you're like, well, this is going to suck 80 dicks at the same time, What, which, which, depending on which way you feel about that, could be great. <laughs> but um, whatever, poison dicks that shoot fire, bad things. Bad things, folks. <laughs> you know, I forgot. Not everyone thinks dicks are bad. Here I go again. So, uh, so basically, you know, it's a rough – it's a tough road to hoe and going from a super high body fat down to contest condition. Now, of course – you would take it slowly. Of course, you would take it incrementally. And of course, you would give yourself the appropriate amount of time. But sheer, you know, time, you know, time divided by deficit or time multiplied by deficit is going to be long. And it's going to cause more, a more profound magnitude of all these diet resistance factors, hormonal alterations, really gnarly psychological alterations, relationship with food, potential for strength loss, potential for muscle loss, etc. So I think one of the benefits of not getting much further than 20% um, and, and, and for the more advanced, not further than 15-ish, is because you're always within shooting range of show condition, and that's not going to whoop your ass to get into. You know, um, uh, some individuals like John Meadows, for example, um, you know, he never really gets that fat. Fuck him. He has good genetics and really good dedication, has been doing this for like a thousand years or something. But his show diet is like eight or nine weeks or something like that. And like, damn. That looks good. And then you see other people that have gotten to absurd levels of body fat, and they're like, all right, time to start prepping. And they just, just describe these horrendous things. Nick Shaw and I, when we did our first bodybuilding show, I think the sum total of the diet was something like 27 weeks of almost exclusively hypocaloric period. I basically had like a borderline eating disorder at the end of that process, something I never want to do again. And fundamentally is because we made an error. We were so far out of shape that we thought we could just one and gun the diet to the show. Clearly that was bad. But I think, you know, insofar as athletes um, don't pay a big price for not exceeding 10%-ish, and of course there's, there's, there's a, a distribution to this, right? Some people for whom it takes heaven and earth to stay at even 15%, there's no way you'd push them down to 10 because then all of those dietary resistance factors would mean that they're not gaining a whole lot of anything except for fat and, you know, maybe their sanity back after you get them down to 10. So for sure there's, there's genetic, uh, you know, situations at play here. But I think for the average competitor, I think if you can keep them between 10 and 15% ish on a massing phase, 10 is high enough that you avoid most of these problems of immediate post show kind of situations with hormonal issues and hunger and stuff. But 15 is, uh, 15 ish is as high as I would go to comfortably be within reach of another competition because I, I'm not a huge fan of getting way out of shape and then cutting like crazy to get into shape and then doing it all over again. Um, I'm not a huge fan of it because I've done it for so long and I, I've been burned so many times. Funny enough, 
I, I don't think that uh, another piece of evidence that um, that uh, mass bulking phases at at fifteen percent plus are catastrophic. Um, I think to build Eric's point, I can offer myself as an example. N of one, of course, is a very limited piece of evidence, but um, I actually um, got up to right around twenty-ish percent body fat at two hundred and fifty pounds, uh, drug-free. Um, that was the peak of my drug-free career. <clears throat> I'm still drug-free, right? So still kicking it. LOL. So uh, <laughs> you know, for the for the various governmental authorities clearly listening to these sorts of podcasts. But um, so you know, I did that. My average body fat must have been around 22%. Some of my bulking phases took me damn near a 30. Now, was that a mistake to some extent, marginally? Yes. Did I still put on like, and I was, I wrestled in the 103 pound weight class in high school, right? So did I put on a shitload of drug-free muscle anyway? Yeah, fuck yeah, I did, right? Um, so I think that when people see this 15 as a top figure, it, it's just like if I was giving out advice to a competitor, I'd be like, yeah, I don't want you to get much fat on 15. But to a recreational person that's naturally pretty lean, they're like, you know, should I bulk to 20%? My advice wouldn't be like, dude, you fucking idiot. You're just going to die and you're going to get super fat forever. And, and again, the, the the moral implications of going above 15%, right? You can't go to funerals <laughs> or be at church anymore because you're the devil. So um, I wouldn't say that. I would just be like, meh, you know, that's okay. And they'd be like, well, what's optimal? And I'd say, you probably don't get too much above 15%. I think you're fine. And they're like, how much are we talking about difference here? And I'd be like, I really don't think we're talking about much uh, a huge difference at all. But just another concern, a really quick, and this is a very small concern, um, staying between in 10, 15%, or I could just dentist on those numbers altogether, staying on the leaner side can allow you to monitor progress visually um, to see if what you're doing is sort of working. Now, there's, of course, numerical progress, like are you getting stronger certain exercises? But I think um, a lot of individuals who do the super bulk, and this is, of course, not something Eric's supporting, but just, you know, because a lot of folks will be listening to this and some may interpret what we have said as, you know, super bulk is great. Just, you know, what is that called? Dreamer bulk or whatever from the internet. Okay. Um, sometimes you think, <laughs> fucking, yeah, like just fuck it all. I'm just going to eat peanut butter out of a straw and liquefied, but it doesn't sound that bad. So, um, you know, that kind of thing is you may very well have thought that you were bringing up your legs, but it turns out whatever combination of training and nutritional approaches you were taking didn't hypertrophy your legs much, but you had no idea because your legs were covered by so much body fat, you didn't know what the fuck's going on. So I think a very small element of there um, is, is to not, uh, is to be able to attract visual changes. And, and, and lastly, I think even for the recreational lifter, there has to be a question asked of why are you recreationally lifting? And I think not all, but many answers will be, you know, I want to look fucking jacked. I want to look good. I want to look better and better. So I, I know I have to make trade-offs of body fat to put on muscle in the long term, but I don't want to spend too much time away from at least looking like I lift and people not just thinking I'm just some overweight person. So I think there's another argument there from the psychological side, which is important. Like, you know, if someone can realistically go from 10 to 15%, it does not impact their hormonal status. It's not fucking up anything on the too lean end. I think it's a potentially a good thing for them to stay in that range because then they at least look like they lift most of the time, which is like goal number one. I would hate to tell someone to get radically out of shape and then back in shape and have them like, you know, for like four week period, look like they want to look and then go back to being a fat piece of shit, uh, et cetera. So those are my thoughts. Excellent. Uh, that was great, Mike. And uh, so we so we heard a couple of things. So so for one, there is the the, the psychological considerations. So pe people just generally like to 
uh, be pleased with what they see in the mirror and that can be encouraging to keep training hard, to keep being on point with your diet. Uh, the other thing is the visual assessment thing. Like, like both of you kind of touched on this. It, after some point, it kind of becomes just hard to assess whether you put on muscle, whether you, whether you just put on more fat. And then also there might be some potential physiological downsides to, to getting over a certain body fat percentage. But, um, uh, Mike, if I understood you correctly, you kind of said that this is more of a concern to more advanced individuals. So if we are talking to the kind of intermediate-ish uh, lifter, who is probably the, the majority of the people listening to this, for them who are not competing anytime soon or maybe don't even plan to compete at all, they just want to look like they lift, would it be a good um, kind of general advice to give them to generally, if they can tolerate it, be at the lower side or leaner side? Uh, and um, but, but generally, just try to aim at a place where they feel good, have good energy levels and are still not too unsatisfied with their body fat percentages. Would that be a general good recommendation? Uh, Mike, you can go first since you unmuted yourself. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah, I think that's just fine. And I, I wouldn't um, – I would belabor the point of staying on the leaner end inversely for beginners and intermediates. Like being like, don't you worry about being lean. You need to get jacked. So as long as you're not over 25%, I think you're good to go. Um as they begun to become intermediates, I would say as long as you're not over 20%, I think you're good to go. As they become highly advanced, I would then say that, you know, if you get over 15%, it's not the end of the world, then I would just try to stick between 10 and 15. So I think there's definitely uh, different levels of advice for levels of individual and their involvement in sport. I think that's actually a good point to make in general, which Eric will likely agree with. Um, sorry, Dr. Helms, I keep – Eric, stop calling me Dr. Israel. God's sake. <laughs> Call me Mike. <laughs> Doesn't it shit cancel out when you're both PhDs, right? It's like, you know what I'm saying? We're all back to first names, which, by the way, is weird to do with your principal investigator that gave you a PhD. Like, all of a sudden, he becomes just like Josh, and you're like, no, absolutely not. Dr. Garnett, I'm never going to call you Josh. That's ridiculous. You know, like, um, so anyway, um, <laughs> I think a good piece of advice is for those individuals looking for recommendations on the internet as far as lifting and dieting, et cetera, training age is a big factor. Um, and, and is one of the, the key stumbling blocks to people looking at what pro bodybuilders do, for example, um, and trying to copy it. And that's drug free or not, you know, um, because they're clearly at the advanced stage and they're just going to be doing some very, very different things. So I think it's always pertinent to consider developmental age, even when giving body fat ranges that are realistic versus optimal, et cetera. Right. Eric, anything to add to this that, uh, we didn't belabor so far? And, uh, -huh. I believe there are a few more things. I think the um, I'm, I'm very much on the same page with Mike with everything you just said, and that extends across all sports. You know, the recommendations you give to a beginner, intermediate, or advanced are going to be different and should be different. Um, I think the only minor point of contention is is one that ends up with the same practical outcome. Is I, I'm not necessarily convinced that there are physiological reasons why someone with more muscle mass and more training age under their belt shouldn't be getting at a higher body fat percentage, uh, or not, not higher, but that 15% is the cutoff. But I think practically, um, look, you, you, you've got maybe another five pounds left you can put on your body ever before you start having, you know, age-related declines and you just can't train the way you want. Um, so why are we pushing up to, you know, 15, 16, 17%? And for God's sake, man or woman, you know, you've been lifting for 15 years and going through this whole competing process this is your 40th show. Uh, don't you think you should have a better relationship with food where you don't have to get up into, you know, like 
low low scale obesity levels of body fat. I think that's that's probably the reason why I would be like, why don't we stay a little tighter? It's going to make your diet easier, and you know this shouldn't be a problem for you. And there's no purpose to be pushing these big big surpluses and for or for or long long massing phases because we just can't do that much in a single off season or even two off seasons. So I think practically that becomes uh, the same outcome, although I'm a little less convinced of the, the physiology there. Um, and then just to belabor the point of not worrying too much about your body fat levels if you are actually training and, and active is, you know, the athletes on the planet that have the highest level of lean body mass ever recorded are sumo wrestlers. So it's certainly not like they turn into Jabba the Hutt and, and, and just because they have anabolic resistance. <laughs> Um, and I think that's just, just something to point out that, you know, activity is a very powerful, uh, modulator of, of, of nutrient partitioning. And, um, I think probably more so than the body fat percentage you're at. Right. Excellent. Uh, I think we are largely in agreement here. All of us, uh, I mean, all the two, the two of you. So, uh, I think we, we could of course, uh, try to uh, distill down a bit even more, but, but I, there's something else I definitely want to touch on. Uh, briefly is, um, and, and, uh, Mike, I'll, I'll turn back to you for a second just to, to give your general, uh, rationale for pushing calories a little bit more aggressively. Because if you're doing one of these longer extended gaining phases that Eric uh, goes for sometimes with his clients and, and even, even with yourself, Eric, as far as I know, where you, you may be in a gaining phase for, I don't know, eight, seven, eight, nine months then necessarily your caloric surplus will be lower. So you can't really go for a 500 caloric surplus mm -hmm. uh, day to day. Um, so, um, so what, so what would be the general issue from your end, Mike, with uh, being more modest with the caloric surplus and uh, just taking it real slow if there's any? Oh, cool. So, so you're asking what my issue would be if I was with, with a very modest surplus. Yeah. When you're gaining maybe like one pound a month. Yeah, I mean, I think it's um, uh, it's very difficult for me to conceive how you can track one pound a month. I think you get in a situation where you can piss away two months comfortably due to humidity changes, due to climate, and your body's proclivity to store water and not know. So you could be mildly hypocaloric or easily eucaloric, isocaloric for a month or two if you're getting a month a, a pound per month, and just have just be none the wiser. Um, I think unless you're weighing yourself at a university laboratory scale. I think most scales uh, tend to have, you know, the company promise doesn't extend much beyond a couple decimal places and, or much beyond, you know, one decimal place. And I think even if you're doing very long-term intensive tracking, um, you know, just, just the, uh, just the um, differences in, in average food choice that you're not even tracking can blur the lines. So for example, if you just got into the habit lately to go with your girlfriend for a Chinese food, and this lately happens to be month two of your diet in which you're uh, going to be putting on weight. Um, it can look like in the second part of your diet, month two, your averages are up. But it turns out because you're eating uh, significantly more sodium uh, uh, just just by accident, just because you got into this Chinese fix for your, your free meals or cheat meals or what have you, putting in your macros, that you have this illusory uh, interpretation. And then month three... You're kind of like, ah, I'm sick of Chinese, and you start going for sushi, and you don't like soy sauce much, and so it's a lot of like lean meats and stuff, and you lose two pounds average scale weight, and you're like, holy shit, I ain't gain anything, right? So that that's my concern there. Um, another concern, not so much concern, but I think there's a the potential to miss out on some gains. 
Um, I think fundamentally body fat, especially for a short-term diet, something like uh, you know three to six weeks of mini cutting, so to speak. I think uh, especially taking the myonuclear domain stuff into account, um, body fat is relatively easy to drop off a lot of it pretty quickly without seriously endangering long-term muscle mass accretion um, and certainly without dipping your muscle settling point down. On the other hand, muscle gains, especially for the advanced athlete, are quite hard. And so I think you need more of a superlative effort to push along muscle gain with a higher surplus, giving the body an unequivocal message for anabolism. By the way, a higher surplus, you know, is uh, basically more insulin secretion is involved and all the messaging systems that detect surpluses are definitely on and sort of maxed out, make, making sure you can put on the most muscle that you can. Uh, per any one unit time, and because fat is so easy to get rid of after that, as long as you, it's not an involved months-long diet in which you can r really risk muscle loss, although I still probably can't risk myonuclear domain um, uh, issues, um, I think that the turns into a situation of why not err a little bit on the side of more, uh, definitely not run into tracking problems, definitely get all the muscle I have coming my way over the next several months, and then if I end up being a little bit too fat, which is really the only downside, that's a matter of four weeks of mini cutting away, and I'm boom back to square one with my body fat. No metabolic adaptation uh, to that mini cutting. If anything, it just makes you a little bit hungrier, ready to be more ready to go, makes you a little bit more sensitive to muscle gain. And I think at that point, you're on the best of both worlds. Whereas if you gain intentionally very slowly, then you could be missing out on some of that stuff and just simply not gaining as much muscle over the long term as you otherwise could be. Those are, those are my, I think, uh, most of my fundamental concerns for that sort of thing. Excellent. So, so Eric, um, couple of points we've heard. So issue of tracking, uh, providing all the anabolic stimulus. And, um, I guess I, I will add, you can also eat a hell of, hell of a lot of food and, uh, you can just be back at square one after a couple of months. So this seems like one hell of a proposal. Uh, what, what do you think of these points? I think they're good points and they're definitely ones I've considered. Um, one thing I, I've come to realize looking at the literature and, and watching, uh, interesting study designs like the stuff out of Jose Antonio's lab where they fed, you know, one group a shit ton of protein, you know, close to two grams per pound and saw very little weight gain, but still some muscle gain in these advanced, uh, well, I should say resistance trained individuals, which is not a great proxy for like an elite level bodybuilder by any means. Um, and just all the studies where we don't uh, enforce a caloric surplus, but we do institute a resistance training protocol and you see body recomp or weight gain uh, happen almost every time just as a kind of a natural change in the uh, you know energy balance of the person subconsciously uh, is that I'm not that concerned when you take a slow bulking approach if you dip in and out of being slightly hypocaloric. Because uh, being hypocaloric isn't like an on or off switch, even though we, it's difficult to talk about it and not present it that way. And I think I'm guilty of that as well. Um, being in a 50 or 100 calorie surplus on a Wednesday when your goal is to be in a net 100 or 200 calorie surplus, I really don't think is going to pull much away from what's happening with you, you know, especially when you're not super, super lean. Uh, I, I don't think there's going to be a huge difference in the, the ability to gain muscle, believe it or not, um, especially at a more advanced stage where you're only going to gain so much anyway. You know, uh, I think Mike mentioned this earlier that having anything happen for an advanced lifter in terms of muscle gain is, is pretty successful. You know, if you're putting on muscle, you're doing something right. Um, 
And I think what bulking actually looks like in terms of the rates of gain uh, and what a recomposition looks like in terms of the rates of muscle gain in a advanced lifter are almost indistinguishable. So I'm just not necessarily convinced that a a higher surplus, while it does from a signaling perspective, it, it basically, it ticks every single box. It makes sure that you're absolutely doing everything you can uh, to gain muscle. I don't know that it actually results in any, any faster muscle gain. Um, and I don't know that I have, and I've definitely tried both. Like, you know, <laughs> you know, like, like Mike, I, um, I, I've been lifting for, for 14 years and probably after year two or three, I found that the whole intentional surplus, uh, for short period of time and gaining, you know, a pound a week really only served to make me fat. Um, and I noticed the same parallel with, with almost all of my clients. Um, so this came kind of from a, an experiential, uh, starting place. And then I started to look at, at data and, and the research and there's, there's not a great data set, but what we do have does kind of seem to indicate that the trained individuals, there is kind of a speed limit there. Um, and while I think I do agree with, with Mike's approach, uh, the only downside I see to it, because I think, yeah, sure. You, if you want to, maybe you're gaining some unmeasurable amount of additional muscle when you've just got every single, single signal in the body pointed towards anabolism. Uh, you're training hard, you're eating a lot, insulin's there, everything he said. Sure. I totally agree. And you, he's right. It isn't that hard to drop body fat. You know, you take a month and a half and go into a reasonably aggressive, you know, you know, deficit, you're at a high enough body fat percentage where you're not going to lose anything in terms of muscle mass, it, probably hitting, hitting pause at worst. And, you know, you, you drop, you drop a lot and you rinse and repeat. I think the only downside to that is that I have found it sometimes when on the, on the psychological side with athletes who, uh, competitive bodybuilders specifically, uh, or physique athletes in general who don't have a great relationship with food, I've found that they're really good at cutting, very good at bulking, but they don't really know how to eat closer to maintenance and they don't have a great grasp of just reasonable, uh, eating like an adult hashtag, if you will kind of nonsense, but you know what I mean when I say that, like eating like a reasonable human, you know, being able to control intake, not cut, not, not bulk. That is something that is surprisingly absent in many, even very high level competitors. Uh, I I've worked with multiple people who are placing, let's say top three at a, at world championship level, uh, bodybuilding competitions who they essentially just slowly slide into uncontrolled overeating in the off season. And their solution to that is I'm going to compete again. So they compete back to back years and do very well. And from the, from the outside, you're thinking, Oh, well, you know, they're, they're just really trying to push from, from third to second to first and just trying to make incremental progress. And they're going to be a world champion soon. The reality is, is that six months into their off season, they're really unhappy with their, the way they look in the mirror, partially because they're actually gained a lot of body fat, partially because they don't have a great relationship with their body image. And they, the only way they really know how to solve that is to then get back on stage. And so I, I think I've seen that enough and that may be something that is, uh, maybe outside of this theoretical conversation, but I think it is a useful thing in terms of overall bodybuilding career development, you know, your long-term relationship with the sport to be able to learn how to eat in maintenance for an extended period. Um, as I think there are useful phases of doing that. And, and one thing my colleague Alberto Nunez does with a lot of his athletes is he'll go into a purposeful, uh, multi-month maintenance phase prior to starting the diet, uh, just to sh- so the athlete can make sure they have a really good grasp on how to track, 
how to hold steady and is ready psychologically to get into the diet itself. Now that's probably unrelated to a lot of what we're talking about, but I think I just don't want to underemphasize how important um, the relationship with food and life is because as much as we try to, you know, look at food as just fuel, it's a huge confounder as far as competitive bodybuilders who uh, have an overwhelmingly high amount of issues in this area compared to other athletes. And I think it's something that um, probably colors a lot of my decisions. So that may be a large factor in the decisions I make around the yeah, off-season eating. Oh, and then, uh, sorry, there was one other point that Mike made that I didn't address and I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, the tracking, the tracking issue. Um, so yeah, because I'm not that concerned if you're in a slight surplus at times, uh, the tracking is not a huge issue for me. Most of the time, uh, practically, I'll just tell you how I do it, is I have someone tracking three or more days per week, morning weigh-ins, and then we're looking at averages, not of even a single week, but sometimes uh, two or three week averages, which is... I would agree, you know, if it's not quote unquote successful over a three week period, you don't know until those three weeks are up when you're comparing, trying to say gain, you know, three quarters of a pound or a pound in that time frame. Uh, but at the same time, the true metric is not whether or not like body weight change is a, uh, something that should correlate with muscle gain, but it's not necessarily the same thing. You know, there are going to be shifts in, in water, body fat and, and muscle mass and, and the, the end result on the scale should probably be around, you know, a pound per month in this scenario we're talking about. Um, but if it doesn't show up, it doesn't mean that your training was ineffectual. It doesn't mean that you haven't uh, put on muscle or that you're not doing things right. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's something where, yeah, you need to look at longer time frames, and that means that your corrections are going to be slower, but you're going at a slower speed. Uh, it's kind of akin to instead of going around with a motorboat, uh, you've got a very large barge and, you know, you're going to make a slow course correction, but that's fine because you're making that course correction slowly as well. So everything's kind of just moving at a different pace. Um, so yeah, that, that's my overall response to that. But I, I do think that it's a very reasonable approach that, that Mike takes with slightly more aggressive uh, massing phases and more frequent mini cuts. Uh, and I think that's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, and I think largely the decision whether you would take a longer, slower approach like I'm suggesting or what Mike is doing would come down to what skills do you need to develop with your eating behaviors? If you simply cannot eat in a small surplus because you only know how to bulk or cut, maybe you should challenge yourself and see if you can take a slower approach. But if you have no issue there and you know, you're purely just at the state in your career where, you know what, I don't have any problem getting, you know, a pound every other week and uh, then doing a mini cut and then I'm all good. You know, I control how long my off season is. I could take a two or three year one if I wanted to come back to the sport. It's all good. Then I think you can feel free to choose whichever strategy you want as there's not a, uh, a psychological or behavioral issue that, that might want to be addressed. Excellent. Yeah, uh, that was great, Eric. And, and I'm glad that you mentioned on the psychological side of things, because that just, again, illustrates how uh, there's a difference between real life and what would happen in a lab setting or the completely th theoretical rationale for things. And, um, and, and I'd like to give the, the mic to, to, to Mike. <laughs> I said it again. So, uh, and, 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 and I guess the, the, the point I, I would like you to react to Mike was Eric's, uh, Mm, what, what Eric mentioned about not necessarily being a detrimental effect of potentially even being in a hypocaloric state at times during a gaining phase, even though 
on the net balance, you you want to be in a surplus overall, and and that the literature is not overly clear on the necessity of um, distinct purposeful surpluses at all times for for building muscle. What what do you think about this, Mike? After a, a mic unmute. Yeah, uh, thanks. Um, I think the advantage to that is for some individuals a psychological one. Um, I think that another advantage is because you occasionally enter hypocaloric periods sort of by accident, you actually keep yourself a little bit more sensitive to muscle gain that way. So you're kind of doing in internal several day mini cuts, so to speak, or several week mini cuts, um, pulsated with, with massing phases, um, that are, you know, of a similar time scale. So that, that's a good thing. Um, from my own coaching experience, experience with myself, um, I've seen you know, sort of two related problems that I think steered me a little bit away into a more formal, more uh, slightly more aggressive, or I would say purposeful direction of nutritional and training inputs. Well, problem one is individuals who you just tell them to eat and lift and everything will be fine. They're not, their hunger levels sometimes inversely associate with their training volumes. So the more they train, um, the more they get sick after squatting and uh, or their, you know, sympathetic nervous system response goes up uh, in association with high volume training and then they're not as hungry and they lose a lot of weight. So uh, precisely when you want them to eat more, auto-regulatory speaking, they don't. Um, and or any variation of you tell someone to eat, lift and grow and they eat and lift, um, but they don't grow much because they simply just don't, they just don't enter hypercaloric phases by accident anymore. Or, or never were prone to, just people who are prone to being skinny. They tell them, okay, just eat, do a good job, and you'll be big, and they just don't eat. Um, I think for good eaters, uh, I think Eric's advice is, uh, of that, of that uh, sort of scope is very sound because they'll gain. You don't have to worry about them. Um, I think that the same advice applies to very large individuals pushing their physiology to, to uh, sort of the very depths of where it'll go. Um, when I got anywhere north of 220 pounds, um, my default eating would be to stop eating for months on end if I could choose because I was so sick of food, I had no idea what to do with myself anymore. Um, so the autoregulatory approach to eating when your body does not want to gain any more muscle, um, this hunger levels are just not down to nil, it won't give you the ability to gain much muscle. I think that if we're looking for truly elite performance for the advanced, we have to push our body with our external tools of, well, sort of willpower uh, and, uh, and to do things that are not uh, indicated that we want to do them, like eat more food than we want, train harder than we want, train easier than we want at times where low-volume phases are necessitated. Um, I think those kinds of forays into an artificially imposed top-down structure are really the only things that are going to make us better. I think after a while of being at the very high level and, and clawing and scratching for a little bit of muscle you can or the least bit of fat you can, your body doesn't want to lose fat anymore and doesn't want to gain any more muscle. And you have to offer a top-down structure, a, a little bit more extremity to first of all guarantee that that's happening and second of all um, you know, guide the person into saying, okay, look, this is 500 grams of carbs today. What do you feel like eating? I don't feel like eating today. Well, I, your body doesn't feel like being jacked. So, um, and, and, and to the, to the 
the extent that you know high level athletes still gain muscle if you just tell them to eat or whatever i think on average they do but if you scope in individual by individual some individuals don't um uh so uh and if we take higher level developmental athletes they don't gain any muscle um just tell them to eat and train that just no longer works so i think for beginners it's great advice for most intermediates it's great advice for um more and more advanced individuals that are really pushing the limits there has to be a top down impl- implementation uh, of all kinds of things of nutritional status of loading strategies you know i don't think i've ever wanted to squat more than 400 pounds um it feels like shit it feels like i'm dying but i do it anyway because i know it's going to make me jacked it's an intellectual exercise versus an auto regulatory exercise um and into insofar as i've made forays of squatting above 400 pounds multiple times for extended periods of discomfort i have bigger legs so i think that um and i think erica made a very good point that for a lot of people who are too psychologically on the edge and have lost touch with food normalcy um i think those individuals are not candidates for my approach um so i guess i would i would say that if you're psychologically okay and eric said as much himself i think uh to you're good to go then i think it's um a fine fine thing uh to to do my more sort of rigid and purposeful approach but if you want a more auto regulated more smooth approach that takes a bit longer um i think that a real good candidate for that is individuals that may not be in a place where if you just tell them to eat a maintenance they just start crying um which actually i've witnessed with several clients and clients of um coaches that have uh, that work for rp um because we as a company we coach like some number of billion people a lot of them on other solar systems and stuff apparently but uh, <laughs> still get the coupon codes baby <laughs> still profit for dr mike but in any case um you know they pay us an alien money we don't know what to do with it but you know we, whatever we're trying to be intergalactic i don't even know what i'm saying anymore no just kidding so um we uh we have the um you know a lot of individuals have come to us um to the idea of a lack of purposeful change of the scale uh a lack of at least trying to get bigger or trying to get leaner especially the latter presents like a epistemic shock right so they're like well, hold on i'm trying to improve myself and we're like yes and for now that means maintaining and they don't know what that means so for individuals like that i would certainly you know uh sort of weasel them into a very very uh much more smooth approach but for individuals that are high level competitors or or close individuals that have the psychological or sort of dexterity to be able to be taken outside of homeostasis uh with purposeful intent um i think those individuals can potentially benefit from uh, what i would just describe as a slightly larger more purposeful forays from homeostatic activity than uh, something like what eric would recommend and and of course the differences are i just remind people are are very small um i'm tired of hearing online that i recommend like gaining 4 pounds a week or some stupid shit and, um or you know like you know it, it goes both ways with all of our sort of fans and ha- haters you know if you don't like a position i think it's best practice to just you know caricature that position as something absurd no one would believe and then and then just critique that because that way you you can win a criticism and feel good about yourself which fundamentally isn't bodybuilding all about feeling good about yourself on the internet mm-hmm. i pause i posit that gentlemen and i and i leave you with that incredibly potent question and my response would be as mike just said that he advises gaining 4 pounds a week uh and um that you have to stay at 5% body fat the whole time i completely disagree and that's stupid Right. 
excellent with fight. And, I, and uh, to, re, to just advance my point further for more controversy, I never liked Captain America. I think he basically doesn't have superpowers. By the way, I know you claim drug-free status. Captain America got his powers by taking highly advanced Nazi steroids. Nazi steroids. I've been drug-free since it. 1941, okay? So that's plenty of time to claim drug-free. Yeah, that's right. A lot of federations would return you to drug-tested competition after, you know, five years or something, so you're good to go. Yeah, like by, in, by, by way more time than I need to be. Oh, gentlemen, gentlemen, let's keep our calm here. <laughs> no, but, um, okay, so, so Eric, uh, I think uh, Mike's points were uh, pretty pretty straightforward, so um, would, would you like to react to, to what he said about the difference between personality types and, and how you want to approach them with your method? No, I, I largely agree, and I, I think um, you know he brought up kind of the whole. I, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but he very much kind of took you know intuitive eating and just kind of being in homeostasis uh, as is hand in hand with with auto regulation of intake. And I think uh, just to anyone who might hear my advice and it jives with them, you know, and maybe jives with their personality, they go, "Yeah, I just kind of want to take a, a more relaxed approach to to, to nutrition or training." Um, what I'm really saying is. You need to be tracking your body weight three to five times a week, and you need to be seeing that you're actually putting on the rates of, uh, of body weight uh, that I suggested. Um, and it's what I'm not saying is just whatever, dude, just do maintenance and, and try to see gains in the gym. I think that is, that is good advice for, for lower-level lifters, like Mike said. But um, when I work with someone, I am looking to see that, uh, depending on their body, body size, on, on average, we'll just keep using this one pound a month. Uh, rate of gain. And that, that does add up, you know, when, when you've, you're, the year's not over and you've put on 10 pounds, uh, that you're going to look substantially different, uh, ideally with, with a fair amount of muscle and not just 10 more pounds of body fat, but it does need to be intentional. It does need to be tracked. You know, I like, I like my data and, um, you know, when I'm doing this, I'm making sure that we're seeing uh, progression in the gym, you know, that we're either able to add reps or add load to the bar, uh, that we may be increasing volume over time, uh, in concert with ensuring that we are reaching that, that one pound a month, uh, you know, target. So it's, it's not to say that it's just kind of just, you know, Hey, just eat and train. It's all good. You know, that's, that's not, I, I don't want people to, uh, to, to think that that's the approach I'm recommending. It, it does need to be measured. I'm just saying that, uh, I'm less confident for drug free lifters that aggressive approaches will be worth it. Um, but you know, many cuts aren't that hard, like Mike said, so you can, uh, easily strip away any excess fat that you've gained. So it's, I think it's more of a personal preference, which which approach you want to go with. But there are psychological reasons to use one or the other. Yeah, and and just to I, I want to bring this up because I, I think Mike didn't mention this that Mike, in your approach, you you also you don't just have mini cuts and gaining phases. You also have these instituted uh, maintenance phases uh, in your approach. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Especially in the context of individuals, their primarily goal is to lose fat over a long period of time. I think that maintenance phases are critical for all of the reasons that Eric described and more. I think their you know, biggest benefit is to psychology, but I think there's a lot of physiological things going on with hormones, et cetera, that make maintenance phases indispensable. Um, Melissa Davis, one of my um, coworkers at Renaissance, wrote a really good article about maintenance phases, um, and it's on the RP blog, and I'll, I'll share it every now and again. I'll share it again soon, um, specifically targeting uh, her coaching population, which is the female population, um, and it, is, it gives all of the, the, the really good things about uh, doing a maintenance phase, both psychologically and physiologically, kind of tries to put it in the context of you're not just killing time, 
these are purposeful, good things that you're doing for your long-term betterment. And I think that uh, one of the resistances to a maintenance phase um, for male, males and females is like, well, what the hell am I doing this for? I'm just treading water. Um, you know, if you want to be a productive individual at work, you don't see weekends as treading water. You see them as a uh, sort of recreation, a rebirth, um, a reinvigoration of your productive capacity in the week. Um, if you're a workaholic uh, that has a poor relationship with work and grinds himself down all the time and then quits work for six months on end and ends up in a you know fishing village in Europe where, Abel, you might actually live currently. I'm sorry to impose my my your my my americocentric view but um you know i think that sort of situation is is one in which uh individuals uh, run into a long time and uh, the idea of a maintenance um phase in general strikes people as very odd and i think it's incredibly important to do it is part of my long-term periodization for bodybuilders but it is even more a feature of people trying to lose fat over the long term and it is even it's something that is very difficult to, to not push on people difficult to convince people of unless they really try to try to buy into it because of that doubt in people's minds that they're just um that they're just treading water right that's what they think a lot of times we've got uh, accumulated quite a few pretty funny questions from clients over the years but some of the common questions about a maintenance phase is okay so how much fat will i lose during maintenance phase the answer is none like how much muscle am i going to gain probably none and they're like but that's crazy. And like, okay, what's crazy is your desire to continue to see linearity and progress at all times and how much you attach your ego to that. Mm. And that's the crazy part. Um, and we need to get rid of that part or at least mute it a little bit so that you can have a long-term health and long-term success. And the, and the two are inexorably linked. Long-term psychological, we'd have a whole other podcast about this, but um, long-term psychological health, the uh, relationship to body image, food, and, and, and essentially your own wellness is critical for long-term body composition goal success, both getting to where you want to be and maintaining it, and for sure to competitive success. Because I've seen a lot of people over the years go hardcore too much, too fast, ignore all the signs, and then they burn out and they quit physique sport altogether or quit pursuing their body image goals. And a lot of them go on to write books that I would say philosophically disagreeable to me, at least in part, saying, you know, the whole fitness industry is bullshit. And this whole idea of that you have to look a certain way is bullshit. And I'm totally done with trying to change my body. You should just love yourself for who you are, which I think is true. But then they say, and don't try to change yourself through a body composition perspective. That last part, I think if you do it right and, and with, with care, I think you can have the best of both worlds. But individuals tend to burn out and go way crazy the other way. And I think that's in part that's um, – Kind of pretending that your uh, that your just psychosis and that your temptation to always be doing something to go forward and forward and forward and forward and never resting is grounded in science or in best practice or somehow gives you some sort of achievement award for working hard. Uh, the achievement award goes for working intelligently, uh, not just hard. So there's my rant for that one. That was beautifully said, Eric. Anything that this sparked in your mind? Oh, just 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 an adoration for for the man that is Mike Isretel and how well he said that and how much I agree. Excellent, excellent. Well, gentlemen, I am fully aware that I'm being abusive to your times. Uh, well, one last question that I, I want to ask because uh, it will be a lifetime of regret if I don't ask this. Um, but do you, do you tend to um, tweak someone's caloric surplus as to how much muscle you anticipate he can gain, not just in terms of training age? But everything in terms of how genetically you think they are blessed, uh, how much stress do they have. So obviously, if someone's recovery is really poor, then they can handle less volume. 
uh, can probably also gain less muscle. So do you take these things into account when setting up someone's caloric surplus? Uh, Eric, start with you because your mic is unmuted. Easy answer. Yeah, definitely. Um, there, there's going to be, like you said, a lot of things that go into the uh, the decision-making process and my guessing, really, uh, educated guess nonetheless, of, of how quickly I think they can effectively gain muscle mass uh, without it being too much body fat. Um, a lot of that's going to come from having worked with the person previously, and I'll err on the side of being conservative initially. Uh, but yes, all, all those things and more are worth considering uh, with how quickly you want to gain muscle mass for sure. Excellent. Dr. Isratel? Yeah, um, they would. Want the uh, for, so, so agreed with Eric. I think that one small point I have to make is I'm not so sure, I'm not completely convinced that higher level, more advanced athletes that are now gaining less muscle should lower their rates of tissue gain because I think when it would be logical to lower the rates of weight gain for advanced athletes, I think there's also some logic in providing more of that extremity of checking all those boxes because without one box check, we may be talking about no muscle gains at all for these people. So I think you may just have to settle for shittier ratios of fat versus muscle while still having to push it as fast. I'm not sure about that. I can't tell what I think about that. I think evidence-wise, I don't think there's any good evidence one way or the other, but um, I can't tell conceptually um, which one of those is a good idea. I think there's no one's going to gain weight like beginners, so for sure you, you're going to ramp them the fastest. And, and as you get more advanced, you're going to go slower. But I think the degree of slowdown between intermediate to advanced slash very advanced, uh, there may be no slowdown because if you slow it down enough, you just slow it down to where nothing happens. Um, uh, those are my thoughts on that. Right. Excellent. Um... So, uh, well, Eric, <laughs> want to react to this one one last time uh, about the the pushing equally as fast, uh, just just to make sure, even if you're an advanced lifter, and then we're going to wrap it up. Uh, I, honestly, I feel like we've probably already ticked that box, and I, I would agree we don't have either we don't have good evidence e either way to know whether that would provide. We have some evidence, but we don't have good evidence whether that would provide an advantage. Um, I'll, I'll definitely concede it's possible. That maybe uh, if we could somehow construct a study where we looked at a, a two one one or two year period and we only allowed um, you know elite level bodybuilders into the study and, and tried these two approaches, we could we could tease that out. But I think uh, we probably unfortunately won't have a great answer to that question. But we can definitely do more research, and uh, I'm hopefully going to be doing a study looking at something similar to this in the future, where we're looking at. Um, probably what would you describe as intermediate or uh, resistance trained individuals, you know, with a couple of years under the belt, at least uh, and decent strength levels. And then looking at uh, different, different rates of, of muscle gain in them, seeing if that, if that changes anything over time. So hopefully we'll have some better data in the future and we'll be able to fine tune our, our recommendations to help more people. Excellent. Excellent. So, uh, so guys, uh, thank you so much. This was excellent. It's impossible to conclude this whole thing, but I think, as usual, there were a lot more agreements than disagreements, as it usually turns out, which, which is, uh, which is nice to see. And I guess one thing that we can definitely universally agree on is that you should probably spend, if you're not overweight or any of those things, you should spend considerably more time during the year, probably three, four, five times more, uh, time gaining than cutting. So I don't think there, I don't think there's anybody who would disagree with that statement. Um, so my last question is, uh, what kind of resources would you 
like people to check out and then we will make sure to link to all of those uh, eric since your mic is unmuted sure yeah the um so m- m- if you're if you're interested in, in putting on muscle and and the different recommendations i have for that you can definitely check out muscle and strength pyramids.com and both my nutrition and training book uh are give guidelines on how to appropriately set up your nutrition and training at all levels uh, whether you are a beginner or whether you're a elite level bodybuilder um and uh, if you're interested in Whatever research does come out on this, you can certainly check out myself, Greg Knuckles, and Dr. Mike Zerdos' monthly research review, MASS, uh, appropriately named for this podcast. That's Monthly Applications in Strength Sport. And, of course, to get all of the insights from the 3D Muscle Journey team, where we coach drug-free bodybuilders and powerlifters, check out 3dmusclejourney.com. Excellent. Dr. Mike? Yeah, so just uh, for uh, good old fitness and really cool stuff on Instagram, at RP Strength, that's Renaissance Presentation Instagram. We have like 100 trillion Instagram followers now, which is apparently good. So come be one of the many drones that mindlessly watches RP people eat food and whatever whatever Instagram is for. I have no idea what the hell it's for. Um, and then... Um, we actually just, uh, myself and my colleagues just authored a really super cool book we're proud of, um, Recovering from Training, titled very exotically. And it is, I believe the first book of its kind that is, tries to describe the entire theoretical and practical application of recovery uh, to uh, sort of uh, educated lay people, uh, intelligent lay people willing to learn. So it's got all the priorities of what's most important, least important about recovery, and it's got all of the practical recommendations, like it's, you know, you're supposed to get XYZ amount of sleep. And by the way, here's really good tips to how to make sure you get good sleep, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all the way down the line, it refutes a whole lot of myths um, about a recovery of which there are like, you know, no less than 10 trillion, um, you know, put cups on your face and shit. Apparently you're good to go. So um, that is available on renaissanceperiodization.com. Give it a look. We're super proud of the book. Um, so maybe you can be our friend and read our stuff. I can say, by the way, I'm, I'm reading that at the moment, and it's good. Thank you. That's awesome. That's really good to hear. Great. Cool. So next question, how much volume should we do? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, all the volume. <laughs> MRV. MRV, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Excellent, gentlemen. This was an absolute pleasure, and I'm super honored that you both took the time. Thank you for having us. Okay, guys, I hope you enjoyed this. The conclusion of the debate, ah, pretty tough to conclude, right? Okay, here's what I propose. Uh, Lament over what you just heard for a day or so. After this, will you bulk slower or faster? Just think about it for a while. And probably by the next day or the day after tops, I'll release a follow-up episode where we will try to summarize everything that we've just heard in this episode to help you process everything. Uh, That will be my little reflection on this debate, if you will. So if you're curious on that, don't forget to get back here. And hey, once again, please check out the resources that these guys mentioned. I'm sure you'll want to put what you've learned here into practice. So go ahead and check out the Muscle and Strength Pyramid books, as well as the research review mass from Dr. Eric, and many of the awesome books on training, nutrition, and recovery management from Dr. Mike. As well, also consider checking out the RP Plus, 
which is the subscription service of Dr. Mike Isratel's company, Renaissance Periodization, where you can have weekly Q&As and tons of video lectures and things of that nature. And also both of these guys have put out tons of awesome free resources that you can check out. So, you know, if you're on a budget, you can give those a look as well. At, at any rate, thanks for hanging around until now and see you next time. Ciao.